again that we can assemble in peace and freedom to examine your scripture and to seek the meaning of the scripture through the teaching of the Holy Spirit and to clarify to our hearts your word so that we can walk by faith because we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We thank you now in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I'd like to uh, begin a little tonight by <clears throat> reviewing a little bit um, one of the things that we always run into danger with, I think, in the Scriptures is because we concentrate necessarily on this point or that point or some other point. Um, we don't develop a discipline to go back to the big idea, the big picture, the big framework, and that's part of what this series is all about, is not getting involved necessarily in all the details, but remembering and going back to the basic picture over and over and over again. So, we have come through all of these events, and we're now going into the conquest and settlement, and we remember that each one of these events teach us some doctrine, teach us some basic truth. And the truths that we learned last time are foundational to everything else uh, last year. When we dealt with those first four events, we said it gave the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of nature, gave a little bit of judgment salvation, and taught us something, very important something, about good and evil. And so we want to go back tonight and look at something out of that, uh, the doctrine of good and evil that we went through, because to understand holy war and sanctification, Necessarily, we have to understand evil, and we have to set these events that we're talking about into a larger picture. And that discipline of setting an event into a larger picture is what we should be doing in our Christian lives, because every day of our life is a little event, and we have to keep setting that little event into the big frame of reference. It's always the battle all the time. And when we get spiritually distracted, it's usually because we got myopia and we're looking at this little event independently of the large picture. So I hope if we keep going through this and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it, uh, that'll be a help uh, to you. This uh, was something we showed about 150 times last year um, because this is the big picture. And part of the, getting the big picture is to be able to assimilate opposition. In other words, when we as Christians say we believe in the Word of God, we ought to be prepared to handle opposition. And while we may not be able to do anything except handle it here, that's fine because that's where the big battle is anyway, in the heart and in the mind. So we want to be able to see and analyze the non-Christian position, the pagan position. And in one sense, we all as Christians have an advantage over the non-Christian here because we too are fallen. We too have sin natures. So we know what it is to think in a sinful way. But we spent most of our lives thinking sinful ways. So we are acquainted with that method of thinking. The non-Christian, however, in principle, doesn't have a clue as to how to think any other way. 
So in a way, he's weaker strategically and tactically because he doesn't really have a taste of the other side. By the grace of God, we do, and so therefore we have access to another entirely different way of thinking. So we have an access to two pictures. He has an access usually only to one and a caricature of ours. So going back to this whole basic picture, we want to think about, first, always think about what the scriptures say, and then to think about what the opposition is. What, what does sin want to do to that picture? So we said last year over and over again, the nature of God in the Bible is that he's creator. He's the creator of the universe. And the most fundamental thing that we can ever think about God is the creator-creature distinction. He is distinguished from that which he creates. He is not the same. He does not know the same way we know. He does not love in the same degree we love. He does not rule in the same way we rule. We have analogies to him and finite versions of him, but we are not uh, in the same category as God is. So, we say that he is ex nihilo. That's the, that's the Latin term that was devised to describe God. Ex nihilo. Some people, by the way, have suggested that really that was a wrong thing. What we should have said uh, is change the preposition and make him into nihilo, creator. That is, he created into nothing because there was nothing there to create into rather than he created out of nothing. Minor point about a preposition, but... Uh, the idea is quite clear that he created with nothing outside of himself. And that belief, just to review, there are only four places you're going to find that belief. You're not going to find it any other place. You will find it in some tribes, even to this day, Southeast Asia being one of the most clearly documented cases, where prior to the missionaries, prior to the missionaries, no Christian influence. Some isolated tribes knew very well the creator, creature distinction, and they knew his name. And they had access to an awful lot of pre-Genesis 11 material. And the question is debated, where did these tribes in Southeast Asia get this knowledge? They never had the Bible. No missionary told them. So obviously, we say, there's a confirmation of the biblical possession. Namely, they passed it on from father to son, father to son, since Noah's day. The second place is ancient Israel, not modern Israel, by the way. Uh, modern Israel, you would find it in the conservative and orthodox Jewish components, but you wouldn't find it in the secular component of modern Israel. You find it in the Bible and you find it in fundamentalism. But you're not going to find that belief anywhere else. So just understand and not get upset when you may be in a classroom listening to an article, listening to a TV program or something else, and they don't believe that. Well... You know, I mean, what else is new? The world is in, the, in darkness. And so that leads us to say several things. And the most important thing that we can characterize is that God is personal and he's also infinite to tying these two things together. Now, on the other side of this barrier, that's what the world believes. Now, there are a million and eight hundred variations to this. But... This is where our flesh wants to go. So when we have struggles in sanctification and when we have to deal with things like holy war that we're dealing with now, 
and people get all upset and agitated about this topic. The thing to keep going back to is the big picture and say, what is the tendency of me and all people that have lived since Adam and Eve fell? What is our intellectual tendency, born of our flesh and our fallen natures? There is a preferred way to think sinfully. And I'm not talking about immorally. I'm talking about sinfully. The two are not necessarily the same. Satan never committed an immorality. So the point is that sin has a feature to it. And that's the thing that we want to go over. And we find this in ancient myths. And you can compare these. You can compare, for example, ancient monotheism and ancient myths, or ancient Israel and ancient myths. This is a test that any kid can, that can read can do this. It's a test. So if you don't believe what we're saying in this class, I offer you the library. Go to the public library and look it up yourself. Anybody who can read can come to these conclusions that I have here. Western philosophy against the Bible and modern theology against fundamentalism. That's where the battle is. Two different, completely different ways of looking at the world system. At the heart of the flesh idea is not necessarily that we don't believe in gods of some sort or another. It's rather we don't believe in a creator creature. That distinction of the transcendent creator who is personal. We will accept gods as long as they're sort of uh, supermen higher versions of ourselves. And remember, if you've studied the myths, that's all they are. They sin like men, act like men, and kill and murder and do everything else like men. And those kind of gods are perfectly acceptable. The battle for in the world system is that when we come along and start talking about Jesus Christ, they want to absorb Him into that pantheon of other gods and goddesses. And that was exactly the accusation against the Christians, and Christians were considered intolerant, rude, and politically incorrect in the Roman Empire because they refused to invite Jesus into the pantheon. What they did is they blew up the pantheon and then worshipped Jesus. And that was considered very intolerant of other people's religious beliefs. So this is why. Because tolerance in that sense is this. It's the idea that we have some sort of a continuity of being and that the gods are just bigger than men, greater than men, but still of the same sort of order. Dr. God and Mr. Man. And behind the gods, because you have finite, limited beings, and we want to remember this because this sounds very theoretical when we put it up here in a chart. But this is at the heart of all of our struggles, whether it's prayer, whether it's suffering, whatever it is. At the heart of this is that since you can't have the infinite creator, you've got to have finite beings. Maybe Venus, it may be Zeus, it may be Jupiter, uh, it may be something. But behind the problem and the dilemma, remember, we said of paganism is nobody's finally in charge. There's always a committee of the gods and goddesses and they meet together and have fights. And out of the fight and the brawl, one or two of them emerge winners for a while until another god comes along and beats them up. And you see, in that kind of a, a committee-type theology, nobody is finally in charge. And that's the weakness of the whole system. So therefore, to get around that, what the pagan has to do is what 
uh, was done in the Star Wars and, uh, motif and so forth, and that is go to a force that is behind the gods. In that case, you have um, Darth Vader and his father, the evil side of the force, but they weren't the force. They were incarnations of the force. The force was an impersonal force. And so, finally, when you get beyond Darth Vader, or you get beyond his father, or you get beyond Yoda, or you get beyond whatever, you have nothing left. There's no person there. It's totally barren. It's just a fate, a blind, impersonal fate. That's the only hope that the non-Christian can have on intellectual ground, once you give up Scripture. Now, out of that rapidly comes the thing that we also showed over and over again last year, but figures prominently in what we're going to do now. And that is, once you accept these two positions, they lead immediately to two radically different ideas about suffering, death, murder, war, cancer, sickness, disease, and whatever. Everything you can think of that's evil, you're going to look at it in one of two ways. Not three ways, not five ways, only one of two ways. In the biblical way of looking at evil, what is the, what is the crucial event that we always ought to discipline our souls to think of? Fall. Genesis 3. The most critical event of history since creation. So we have to go back to the fall. Why do we go back to the fall? The reason is because that interval, that little interval that we always point to that existed between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3. Why is that interval so important? Let's, let's just have a, a little discussion here for a minute. Why is that interval between the time that God created and the time that evil started, why is that absolutely critical for a biblical view of suffering, death, and, and, and the whole question of evil? Think of it this Yes, go ahead, George. What? Okay, it tells us that evil was not there from the point of creation. And therefore, evil has a boundary to it. You see, I, I've, you can talk to hundreds of people and it just doesn't get up here. And the older I get and the more I thought about this, this is so easy to see. And most people miss it by a mile. And I'll tell you what happens practically in your life if you do miss it by a mile. You become bitter and angry at God. You, if, if you can walk into a hospital and see a dying child, I mean, it's hard enough to deal with that kind of a situation. But if you don't have this straight, you have to revert to a bitterness and anger against God Himself. And I'm sure that if we had testimony tonight here, you could go through your family, just your family, never mind your neighbor, but in your own family, you would find people that lived all their lives, year after year after year, bitter at God for something that happened. God's fault. God's fault. God let this happen. I lost my wife. I lost my child. God's fault. And I'm not going to go to church. And I'm not going to go to that hypocrites. I don't have anything to do with God. That kind of a God. That kind of attitude. See, it all comes about the fact that, sorry fella, or girl, whatever, 
You think that way, you're screwed up. You're really screwed up. Because the universe wasn't created with evil. When it left God's fingertips, it did not have evil in it. It had the capacity and potential. Yes, it did. But the responsibility for evil cannot be placed upon God. The responsibility for creating a history in which creatures would choose evil, that, yes, that is his responsibility. So, evil is bounded on this end. Now we come to, the, to get background for tonight and for what we're doing now. Let's move on on the timeline. Oh, and by the way, before we go any further on the timeline, notice what happens down here. On the non-Christian basis, evil has no boundaries. It always has been and always will be. Those of you who have read a little bit about Oriental religion, New Age, Buddhism, Zen, what's characteristic of all these views? How do they have to ultimately deal with evil? I mean, everybody faces evil, everybody dies, so they have to have answers to it. What are their approaches to it? You now, they laugh at us. Why don't we start turning around laughing at them? We've got to cry for them. Their answer is so pathetic. What is their usual answer? What is their way, usually, of coping with it? Well, in the Orient, the whole, and we always cite the Orient, not because the people in the Orient are more evil than the people in the West. It's just that in the Orient, the people have had centuries to purify their unbelief. C.S. Lewis said, really, there are only two religions in the world, and he's absolutely right. Biblical Christianity and Hinduism. If you really want to study, you don't have time to study a thousand and eight religions. You don't have to. You don't have to study two. If you want to study unbelief in its highest form, study Hinduism. Because that is unbelief well thought through. And in this idea, what you tend to always face is if you really believe the bottom line here, what you're going to have to conclude is that the only way you can escape evil is to do what? Not die. Because if you die, that evil keeps with you. So logically, if you believe that way, how do you escape from evil? The only answer that has ever been given is to be absorbed into the nirvana or lose your existence. And that's existentialism, and that's the modern authors. This is the modern art, modern music, going into this direction, because it's just picking up a centuries-old theme of unbelief. It's the only exit I've got out of the room. If evil always is part of this, whether it's material or immaterial, the only way to stop it is to destroy it. And that's why there's the famous saying in the Orient about it just become a drop drips back into the ocean and becomes part of the ocean. See, that way you get rid of consciousness. And if you get rid of consciousness, you get rid of the pain. So it's a very, uh, very trapped type of thing here. And on this basis, you never can get rid of it. Shoot yourself, do whatever you want. Take drugs, whatever you want. But you're not going to get rid of evil. Now, on the, non on the Christian basis... Evil has a start, and now we come tonight to this. Evil will be put aside. That goes on forever because there's eternal existence for the creatures. But it will be split so that good and evil once again become separate and apart 
the splitting of good and evil at the end of history, the return of Jesus Christ, and the ultimate judgment of God, and the relegation of evil to, a, to an eternal garbage heap called the lake of fire, is inherent in the Christian message. We have people today that want to apologize for that. Oh, that sounds, we just don't like that. I mean, that's not user-friendly religion. Well, excuse me, but if you don't have this, you have to go to this. I don't call that user-friendly, do you? You want me some stupid drug thing? And make me believe that? The only way to unscrew my head is to take pills? That's, that's being mature? So, they may not like it. We may not like the Christian answer, but I submit to you, do you have any better answer? I mean, throw out the challenge. Someone come up with a better answer. And until you do, probably you better shut up about criticizing the Christian position. So that's the idea that we're going with tonight. And that is, we're going to focus in on the splitting that occurs between good and evil. Because God says He bounds evil. He, it starts and it will be dealt with. And in this interval between the beginning of evil and the end of evil, that's the period of abnormality. Everything during those two termini is are abnormal. Our whole existence right now is abnormal. This is why statistical surveys, as we said, of social behavior cannot be used to create values. Because all you're doing is you're describing abnormality. If you have a bell-shaped curve, what is the mean in the bell-shaped curve? It's the mean sinful behavior pattern. Now, how thrilling. And yet we have people, sociologists, that want to do the bell-shaped curve and then make that the norm. And if you're out on the two sigma, three sigma end of the normal distribution, you're an extremist. No, it just means you've got an unusual variety of sin, that's all. But it doesn't mean that you're not sinful. So, what we want to deal with is put this chart is the basis for the conquest and settlement that we're, we're studying now on holy war. Now let's turn in our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 9 because we want to, we've looked at the first event which is the covenant breaking at Sinai. We've looked at the second one which is holy war and we want to spend a little more time on those two. Deuteronomy chapter 9. Again, by way of review and background, the first five books of the Bible, remember they're called the Pentateuch? And what's the relation of these books to the Bible to each other? Why are they clustered together, the first five books of the Bible? Who clustered them together? Moses. Alright, so Moses and his colleagues collected revelation available to them and compiled it in what we call the book of Genesis. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, we've looked at Genesis, and here's the sort of the logical structure of Leviticus, Numbers, and then, and of course Exodus is over here. I suppose I should draw it this way. And this is Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a review of all of those, the events of those three books, but 40 years later. Okay, so Deuteronomy is a backlog. Deutor, deuterium. Deuter means what? 
second, right? Deuterium, it's, that, it's the word deuter, is to be two. So Deuteronomy and namas is law. Deuteronomy means the second law. The second time the law was expounded. It was first expounded by God and Moses uh, when it was given. And then we have this big gap in this interval of 40 years. And then Moses, just before he died, preached the sermon. And that's why I say you can take a stopwatch, read the book of Deuteronomy, and you get an idea how long he spoke. Deuteronomy 9 is a passage of where God is speaking and he wants to brief people on going in to the conquer. Now, if you look in your notes on page 4 at that map, you'll see the place called A, Kadesh Barnea. And A was the initial strategy to conquer the land. Strategy B was used 38 and 40 years later. But right now, by the time of Deuteronomy 9, he's looking back at the opportunity to invade from the south. All right, let's look at Deuteronomy 9, however, from the standpoint of a retroflexion upon their own history. Verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you're crossing over Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. So they're all ready to go. This is in strategy B, 38 years later. But he's looking back to the event where they could have done it by strategy A, 40 years earlier. Now, there's certain things stated in verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5, principles that we're going to see again and again in this conquest and settlement that tell you why over hundreds of years, Christian devotional authors would fondly return to the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy for devotions. Now you wonder, what on earth are Christian devotional writers going back to these passages in Scripture? It's one of those questions. Remember last time I said, we have genocide, we have intolerance, and we have a refusal to peacefully coexist. And yet, Christian devotional writers will go back to these passages again and again for principles in the Christian life. So let's look at some of them because this will come together as we work our way through it. Verse three, verse 4, verse 5. God speaking. Know therefore today that it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you. By the way, who's the them? Them are the peoples inside that black hatched area on the map. Them are the people that were forecast in Genesis 15 when God gave the Abrahamic covenant which promised what? Three things. Seed, land, and a worldwide blessing. Land. Land was promised. Just reading tonight, an Old Testament author who pointed out, you know what the fourth most frequently used stem in the Old Testament is? L-A-N-D. The fourth most used root, substantive root in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is L-A-N-D. And that shows us how important land is and the dimensions of the land because the dimensions of the land go back to what covenant? Abrahamic covenant. And what's the whole idea of a covenant? A covenant or a contract is established to monitor behavior. And when you monitor behavior, you measure integrity of character. 
So, the testament is a testament of does God structure history to fit the Abrahamic contract? That's the issue. Is God faithful to that contract or isn't he? So, the land is prominently, because you can measure it. I mean, you can lay it all out and measure it, draw it on a map and so on. It's easy to see what's happening to the land. It's one third of the whole Abrahamic contract. Well, now, you go there for it. He's going to destroy them, that is, the occupants of the land, who by now, remember Genesis 15 passage we went to last week, the iniquity of the Amorites has become full. These people have rebelled and rebelled and rebelled, and they represent a subset of the human race located geographically in the land of Canaan who had rebelled to the maximum and were theologically a damned people. They are a damned people. They are scheduled for extinction. Not a pleasant idea. But just as the Jews become a picture of God's grace and history, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Jebusites become a picture of people going to hell. That's what they are a picture of. They represent in their personal histories what happens when men rebel and rebel and rebel and finally the boom is lowered. They've never learned to submit to God's authority. They didn't learn it in their home. They didn't learn it in their schools. They didn't learn it in their society. And so they will learn. They will learn it in hell. And they will have a long time to learn what it means. So there's no escaping from authority in this universe. God is an authority, whether I like it or not, whether you like it or not. God is an authority. And everybody will finally say one way or the other, we have to adjust to that. So these people are going to, going to be adjusted to that. Now he says, you may drive them out and destroy them quickly, just as the Lord spoke to you. Now look at verse 4 and 5. This is a warning to believers. It's easy to get the fathead and be self-righteous and conclude when God does this separation that it's, oh, because, you know, we're such beautiful people and we have such wonderful integrity in our characters and we wouldn't do those ugly, horrible things. I mean, after all. And this kind of thinking gets started. And it's just prideful thinking. So notice verse 4 and 5. It's a tremendous passage of Scripture. Don't you say in your heart, when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. It is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess their land, but it's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, looking at verse 4 and 5 and thinking through in your hearts how we... Let's put ourselves in that situation a moment. And that kind of thinking that's going on is being challenged by God in verse 4 and 5. What is God arguing? Can anybody state his argument about the whole idea of this holy war, this whole conquest and settlement thing that's going on here? This event that we're looking at, these trans this whole 400 years... What is God insisting is the issue here? Whose objective is involved? Is it, is it man's or is it God's? Is it even believing man's or is it God's? It's God's objective. It's 
It's God's objective. It's very easy simply because we're part of God's people to somehow think it's our objective. That this is something for our benefit. Ultimately, it's not. We enjoy benefits, but the objective is God's purpose in history. That's the objective. It's not to give us religious versions of aspirin. It's not to give us psychological relief. All those are bennies. Don't get me wrong. But that's not the purpose of it. There are far higher, greater purposes to history than us. And that's what this passage is about. It's because God has a plan, and primarily because it goes back to this diagram. If God doesn't get rid of evil, then it's not contained. Notice verses 4 and 5. I do this because I, the God of the creation, against whom this evil began, I am going to eliminate it. You just happen to be involved in the process. But the process is mine, not yours. And it goes on because of my promise to Abraham, not because I look down and I see you're such wonderful people. You see, this takes the pride out of it. These are excellent verses to just remember that no matter what blessings we get from God, it's grace. It's not because we have righteousness in and of ourselves. Remember we went back to imputed righteousness? The righteousness is Christ, not ours. And this causes, verses 4 and 5, when meditated upon, will keep us, in the middle of this holy war thing, from getting bitter toward people. You can be righteous and courageous and stand up in the most awesome way to the opposition without becoming personally bitter at evil people. So, the warning here that that whatever the plan is, the objective is God's objective. Years ago, a man by the name of James Wilson, a Christian officer in the Navy, who for many years uh, wrote for the uh, Christian Office of Christian Union Military, uh, had a book in which he he summarized the principles of war. It's a great book if you ever get a chance. Sometimes it's reprinted. And what he did, he went through the uh, literature of military science. And... In military science, one of the things you study are the principles of war. Um, it's an art form. I mean, it sounds kind of funny, but uh, mil- there's such a thing called military science, and you study it. And today, uh, millions of dollars are devoted to military science to train. Um, we don't do so much of it at Aberdeen Proving Ground, but there are army bases and air bases where they do nothing but train and train and train over and over and over and over and over again. I personally am convinced that military training, whatever the subject, is far superior than anything I've ever seen in the civilian non-military community. And there's a simple reason for it. In the military, you get the lesson right or you die. There's a little motive to learn what is supposed to be taught. That's why the first thing you learn is there's authority structure. So you don't have this circus that we call a public school system where every Tom, Dick, and Harry can say whatever they want to the teacher. You don't say whatever you want to to some drill instructor. The drill instructor's in charge and the officer's in charge. And that's because it's the only way to survive. So, 
uh, when, when Wilson starts out his book, he starts out with an objective. And he has a neat illustration that I wanted to share with you tonight because I will share out of this as we go through this because the background for this conquest and settlement really is military science. And the reason for that is, is not that God uses military science to illustrate his principles. It's rather military science exists because this is God's universe and that's the way the universe runs. Now he's talking about uh, an objective, the objective. In war, says Sun Tzu in 500 BC, in war then, let your great obje object be victory, not lengthy campaigns. The issue isn't the glory of the campaign. The issue is get to the objective, get it over with. And he points out then, he says, imagine a situation where in, when war is declared by Congress, their objective is victory. They pass the assignment to the commander-in-chief. The commander-in-chief meets with the Joint Chiefs of Staff. To oversimplify it, the decision might be to invade and occupy specific nations in Europe and Asia. The plan would be assigned to Asia to the commander-in-chief Pacific and Europe to the commander-in-chief Atlantic. These subordinate commanders must then make an estimate of the situation, come to a decision, and develop a plan. They, in turn, assign objectives to subordinate commanders. Commander-in-chief Pacific orders commander of 7th Fleet to land certain armies and marine divisions in the assigned country in Asia. The process of estimating the situation, making a decision, and assigning objectives to subordinate commanders continues right down to the company, platoon, and squad level. Every man in the chain of command has his objective assigned to him by higher authority. Now suppose, now suppose an individual infantryman has as his objective the top of a sand dune on a beach in Asia. He's pinned down by enemy fire and he cannot make a move. While he's in the position, he suddenly sees a paper floating across the beach. In this, in the, so far, this is a very real situation, but let's suppose we make it a little unreal and even ludicrous. The paper happens to be a page from the Joint Chiefs of Staff operation order. As the page lands in front of him, he reads the assigned objective to the, com the Commander-in-Chief Pacific saying, invade and occupy such country X on the continent of Asia. This is too much for him. He cannot even get off the beach. And they're telling him to occupy the whole nation? To him it is unrealistic, since he cannot understand how the whole can be taken, he might even lose the will to get top of the sand dune. And Wilson's point there is that you have to keep in mind the total objective, but that high-level objective is many layers removed from your little battle and my little battle. So, in one sense, we want to remember, in this case, verses 4 and 5, it's God's objective to remove evil from this land. That's his big objective, and we have to keep that in our, our sights. But on a daily basis, it's to walk around Jericho, as he tells us. It's to not take loot, as Achan did. It's to, by faith, assume that we can invade the land in the first place. We're going to see in Kadesh Barnea they didn't accept that. So, the analogy we'll begin to develop to our own Christian life in a little bit. We just want to enmesh and bury ourselves and get lost, as it were, in the text of this Old Testament period of history. So in, in Deuteronomy 9, God, God says that it's not your right, it's my objective. Verse 6, Know therefore it's not because of your righteousness the Lord your God has given you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. And that's that first point. Remember the covenant breaking at Sinai? The people were having party time down at the bottom of the mountain while the law was being given. And it shows the fact that there's a necessity for a... Uh, circumcised heart. Now, in, Gen in Deuteronomy chapter, 12, uh, chapter 10, the next chapter, verses 12 deal with that. 
Verse 10 of chapter 10. Let's start there. This gets back to the first of the seven incidents. Covenant breaking at Sinai. Moses is talking now and he says, I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights like the first time. The Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was not willing to destroy you. And the Lord said to me, Arise, proceed on your journey ahead of the people, that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Now Israel... Now, remember we said that the law was addressed to the heart? Pagan law, non-Christian, non-biblical law is always addressed to the behavior alone. It's always just a public thing. But the God, when He addresses us in law, He ties values and ethics to the law and addresses the heart. It's always addressed to the depths of the heart. And so in verse 12... Uh, verse 10, uh, verse 12 rather. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes which I'm commanding you this day. Now, notice in verse 12, love the Lord with all your heart. We went through the, what the word love means in that day and age. It had a very political connotation as well as sort of romantic. It means to obey, to carry it out. Verse 14, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heaven and the earth and all that is in that. Now, verse 14 reminds you of what distinction? Remember we started the class tonight? What we say was the basic thing that underlies the whole big picture. The creator-creature distinction. And right in the middle of the passage, what do we see? God reminding them, who is it that is the creator? So you see, you have to have a big picture of God. Behold, verse 14, to the Lord your God belong heaven and earth, yet your fathers did set the Lord, uh, did set, did the Lord set his affection to love them, he chose their descendants after them. Verse 16, circumcise therefore your heart and stiffen your neck no more. Now how do you do that? What, in other words, is the motive to keep on, keeping on during this period of pressure and not nice living in this conquest and settlement? Is it Operation Bootstrap? I just sit there and I think, well, God's a great God and I'm just going to keep doing it. Just read a little bit further. Because here's the content of the motivation like we saw last time in Exodus 20. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality or take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan, the widow, shows his love for the alien by giving them food. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve and cling to him. You shall swear by his name. He is your praise. He is your God who has done these great and awesome things for you which your eyes have seen. What is he talking about? The great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. It isn't the conquest and settlement because that's the future to this verse. So what are the great and awesome acts? What was the previous historical act? Let's go back here. Exodus. And what does Exodus show us? Salvation. So, conclusion. What is then the biblical revelation? What does biblical revelation say that is the motive that we are to go back to to charge our batteries so we can keep on keeping on? Where do we go? Do we look at ourselves? Do we look at our Christian lives, our victories and our defeats? That's not here. He wants us, in our heart of hearts, to go back to what? Because the motive to keep law, to love the Lord with all our heart, there's a prior motive to that. Because of what has He done for us. 
Remember? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Israel, out of Egypt. Therefore, and he gives us the law. So the motive behind the law is gratitude for my salvation. So where do I get the power to go on? Where do I get the power to face the struggles in the Christian life? Where do I go? I go back to graciousness and gratitude to my God for my salvation. Now, in the church age, in our age, centuries after this, God still is doing the same thing. Principle hasn't changed from Old to New Testament because what is the ordinance that has ordained to be performed century after century in the Christian church? And what is the objective in communion? Is it to commemorate our personal defeats and victories? No. The objective of communion is to get our eyes off of you know, many great blessings, but there's also a lot of gook and stuff in our lives, is to get off of that and onto what? What Christ has done for us. The bread and the wine held up as the emblems. This is my body. This is my blood. You don't hear any mention. This is your testimony. These are the six answers to prayer you got last week. These are the nasty things that have happened to you over the last ten days. It's not there. This is my body, which is given for you. This is my blood, which was shed for you. You see, the motive is the same design in the New Testament as it is in the Old Testament. The motive, you get charged inwardly only as we look to what He has done for us. You have to stop still. And this is why communion is repetitive. Baptism is once in our lives, but communion is over and over and over and over, repeated, 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 repeated. Why? Because we have to get it remembered. Because in the flotsam and jitsam of day-to-day living, we forget. We, our minds get cluttered. This clutter, clutter, noise, confusion. We've got to get rid of that stuff and stop and think, what has he done for me? We owe him. That's the motive for obedience. Not that we've got to do it to earn something. It's the other way around. Because for of us, we owe him. That's the motive, whether Old or New Testament. Okay, so that's what circumcised heart means. Because you can see the command, verse 16. See that your hearts are circumcised. And then proceeding in verse 17, verse 18, verse 19, 20, 21, 22, it's a rehearsal of the Exodus, the fallout of the Exodus. He tells them in verse 16, this is what I want you to do. And basically in verses 17 and 22, he's told you how to do it. Think on my great acts that I have done. Okay, so that's the first event. We've covered that tonight. We've gone through the Declaration of Holy War and Final, and uh, the, uh, the, the um, Circumcision of the Heart. And we want to, on the bottom of, of uh, page 2 and page 3, uh, is armed, and it doesn't come off the rack on my wing, what do I do? If I, get, uh, if I have to flee the enemy aircraft, and I use up more fuel, now I'm low on fuel, now what do I do? So all those things have to be thought through and the basis of doing it is intelligence. Well, Moses goes back through and the list of the tribes, verses 5 through 16, is he, this is his personnel. He makes every tribe participate in the intelligence. Verse 17, Moses sent them to spy out the land. Go up there into the Negev, to the hill country, see whether the, uh, whether, what the land is. Verse 19, uh, see how the cities which they live. Are they open camps? Do they have fortifications? 
How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees or not? Make an effort to get some of the fruit of the land. So they went and they spied out the land all the way up to the north end, by the way, notice. And then they came back with some of the grapes. And by the way, when they said in verse 25, they came back from the intel position, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron, they brought back word to them and they showed them the fruit of the land. Now, what did God promise that these people would do? That this land was flowing with milk and honey. It was going to be a blessing, right? Now, what does verse 27 report? Is it a blessing? Does this land have assets? Does it have resources? You bet it does. Has God been faithful to His promise so far? War hasn't started yet, but is the land what God said it was? Yeah. But verse 28. Now, this is what I love about the Old Testament. I love it because God portrays men, warts and all. And I have my warts and I like to see somebody else have theirs and it's encouraging. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. The cities are fortified. They're very large. And we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living there. And Caleb quieted the people and said, we're going to go take it. Verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go against the people. They are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report. The land through which we have gone in, spying it out, is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. Now, what do you think, just from the history that you know, thinking of that map, who had the bigger army? Egypt or the Canaanites? Let's just think this one through a minute. Egypt was the superpower in their day, right? What did God do to their military machine? He drowned it. Did he need any help from the Israelites? Did they get with their swords and their spears and they took on Pharaoh and his chariots? No. God took care of that. The exodus happened without any help. So he's asking them to go in and they do an analysis. They find in verse 27 that what God said about the land is true, but then they add the fact that it's not going to be a pushover. We got some opponents in verse 31 32. We got a big problem here. And verse 33 is a classic statement. It's classic. We saw the Nephilim. These people were large, by the way. And we became like grasshoppers. But look at what the text says. Remember the, who wrote the text. It's the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't say, we became like grasshoppers in their sight, does it? We became like grasshoppers in our sight. See, it's just a little faint recognition of the fact that what is going on? They're getting psyched out here. Now, how many times have we all gone through this process? You see, the mental processes that we're going to observe in this conquest and settlement are directly analogous to the mental processes of living the Christian life. And that's precisely why devotional writers come back to these pages and these events to gain inspiration and guidance in living the Christian life. Do we have opponents? You bet we have. Spiritual unseen guys that are very, very powerful. The principalities and powers of the air. Are they going to let us have our way? Not if they have anything to say about it, they're not. This is their world. This is Satan's world. He owns it. We're the intruders. We're the aliens. We have come like the Jews onto his turf. You think he likes us here? You think he really enjoys seeing us gathered together to study scripture? I don't think so. 
And so therefore, he doesn't enjoy you trying to establish a godly home. You think he's going to take that line down? No, no. There's opposition. This is an evil world because evil hasn't been removed yet. Remember the objective. So, at the end of chapter 14, look what happens. Verse 31. After, after they say this unbelieving expression, your children... Now, here's, look at how God inverts it. They're afraid they're going to die. They're, oh, they're so concerned about their homes. Now he says in verse 31, Your children, whom you said would be a prey, I'll bring them in. They will know the land which you have rejected. But for you, your corpses are going to fall in the wilderness. So that generation, verse 33 and following, that entire generation had to die before the unbelief was purged out of that land and they could once again take the land, this time by campaign B on the map, from the east side. But between campaign A and campaign B is 38 long years. A left time, literally, to allow unbelieving elements in the, in the people of God to die out so the younger people who could believe could take the objective. What a lesson. Then, of course, now in verse 42 and 43, look what happens. This is the conclu grand conclusion of the discussion. Moses says in verse 42, because he sees clearly now, they've, they've blown it, do not go up lest you be struck down before your enemies for the Lord is not among you. Forget it. You're not going to get this objective now. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will be there in front of you and you will fall by the sword inasmuch as you've turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But they went up heedlessly to the ridge of the hill country. Neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses left the camp. And the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down. They struck them and beat them down. First military defeat they had. Because they rashly said, they rashly said they're going to do up, go up. Verse 40, just before that. In the morning, however, they rose up early. They went up to the ridge of the hill country and said, Here we are. We've indeed sinned, but we will go to the place that the Lord has promised. Now look at the juxtaposition of those two clauses. We've sinned. That's all right. No problem. We're going to take it anyway. It doesn't work. See, the Lord speaks to the heart. And if the heart isn't right, the externals fall apart. And that's what the whole thing about this thing is going to be. Love the Lord with all your heart and the other things follow. Take that away and everything else collapses. You can't fake it. You can't go through the motions. It doesn't happen. It won't occur. We get defeated when we do that. So that's one of the things that we'll get into again and again. But if you will read, 13, uh, Numbers 13 and 14 is a fantastic area of devotion to read. And I would suggest for next week too, on page 81, if you prepare by looking at Joshua 2 through 6, because that's the famous battle around Jericho. And we're going to look at that. Father, thank you for these words of wisdom that you have given us in Scripture. And thank you for being honest to us and telling us what our hearts are made out of and why we can't rely upon our flesh and why any righteousness we have is righteousness which you first gave to us in grace. And may you always remind us and reach down when we get distracted and get absorbed in the details of life to pull back and to think why we're here. 
that what wonderful things you have done for us in providing salvation from our sin and access to your presence. We ask that you do this through Christ's name. Amen.